Even the last uh, couple months here, there's been an exciting archaeological discovery of what they call a curse amulet at Mount Ebal, the very place mentioned in this passage. There had been an altar discovered years before, and they believe it to be Joshua's altar that he set up here in this text. It's from the 15th century BC. But recently, people went through some of the debris that they had gathered in uncovering this altar, and they found this little tablet, this curse amulet. It's a lead tablet. On the inside was written a curse from the God Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel. And so this is an important discovery. It has big implications for biblical archaeology. Maybe some of you have already read about it. It is a strong confirmation of the truth of Scripture and a conservative view of the conquest and the date when it happened and the scriptures in general. On this tablet, as I said, it's a curse written by Yahweh. And it says this in very ancient Hebrew writing. It says, cursed, 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 cursed by the God Yahweh. You will die cursed, cursed you will surely die. Cursed by Yahweh, cursed, cursed, cursed. There's a lot of repetition there. Obviously, we we get the point. It's a curse from God himself. We don't know for what reason, but this passage sheds light on just that blessing and the curse of God that was pronounced in Israel even at that time. So this is after the battle of Ai. We saw last week in chapter 8 that the people went out, empowered now by the Lord. They had repented. They had destroyed Achan and his family. They went up to Ai. They triumphed over Ai and Bethel. And they also covered their king in a heap of stones. But now we see the the topic changing quite suddenly. Um, Dale Ralph Davis puts it like this. We go from a war movie to a worship service. From conquest to covenant. It's like you're watching television and there's suddenly a a news broadcast that, that breaks in. This is kind of what this is like. All of a sudden, we're at a different place. We're at a worship service. The people are reading the law of Moses and the blessing and the curse. Why were they doing this? Well, this had been commanded back in Deuteronomy chapter 27, which Ken read for us. God had told them that they went, when they went into the land, when they crossed over, they were to do this renewal of the covenant and the blessings and the curses at Mount Ebal. And so we see them doing everything as God had commanded back in that passage. This also shows the great commitment of Israel that they would lay down their weapons for a while and they would worship the Lord. They would focus on his word. And we want to consider four points here this morning about this passage. Four themes that come to the forefront. That is the altar and the sacrifices of God, the law of God, the people of God, and the blessing and the curse of God. So first of all, let's look at the altar and sacrifices of God. In the first two verses, we see this. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, 
on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. So God had commanded back in Deuteronomy 27 verses 5 and 6 that they would set up this altar with uncut stones, no tool wielded on them. Similar command to Exodus chapter 20 verse 25 that says they were to set up this altar of uncut stones. No man was to wield his tool upon it or he would profane it. Why is that? That it had to be of uncut stones. No one could touch it. I think at the very least, this shows us the holiness of that altar. It was an altar of God. You weren't to approach it glibly or with your own human tool or you would profane it. This was a holy altar to the Lord. We know the altar was a place where sacrifices to God were made of various kinds. We see here they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. A burnt offering was a sacrifice that was presented for atonement and the whole thing was to be burned up. And it was also a symbol of complete devotion to the Lord. A peace offering signified peace, obviously. That is shalom, a, a wholeness and a restored relationship with God. And it would often be followed by a communal meal. And that's exactly what we see. Deuteronomy 27 verses 6 to 7 says, And you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God, and you shall sacrifice peace offerings and shall eat there, and you shall rejoice before the Lord. So they sacrificed these things as they gathered together, they communed, they ate with one another, and they rejoiced. They rejoiced in the Lord. They rejoiced in their mutual atonement and reconciliation with God. We have to note that this sacrificial system was the only way God could live with his people. At the end of Exodus, God comes down to the people in the tabernacle, but they can't enter. And then he gives them the sacrificial laws, all these ceremonial laws, in order that God might live with them, to teach them that it's only by the shedding of blood that there is forgiveness of sins and access to God. If we read Deuteronomy 27, we re realize it was on Mount Ebal in particular where this altar was put and where the curses of the covenant were proclaimed. We'll consider in a, in a moment just more about the blessings and the curses. But it was on Mount Ebal in particular that the curses were to be recited. And it was on that mountain that the altar was set up and these sacrifices were made. So if God is saying there that it's only by sacrifice that the curse of God is taken away and the people may be blessed. We know as New Covenant believers that all of these sacrifices of bulls and goats could never take away sins. Hebrews 10, 1 to 4 says this, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, 
It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. All these sacrifices did effectively was remind people that they were sinners, that they needed atonement, and they were a shadow of better things to come, a better sacrifice, a better covenant, better promises to be filled by Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10.5 goes on, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Friends, we know Christ is our burnt offering. Christ is our peace offering. He was burned up by the wrath of God, completely devoted to destruction on that cross for us. And he made peace between us and God by the blood of his cross. Golgotha was like another Mount Ebal and the cross was an altar where Jesus offered himself up on behalf of the sins of his people to sanctify them, to perfect them, to bring forgiveness of sins forever. And this, friends, is what we rejoice in. As we come and we gather, we worship, we commune, we eat together, we rejoice in Jesus Christ. It's what we've come to do this morning. And there's always reason to rejoice if we know what we have in Christ. These blessings, these, this new covenant forgiveness, this way to God, the new and living way. As Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice We can always rejoice because Christ has given us the greatest sacrifice that can never be taken away. So that's the first feature of this passage. But moving on, I want to talk about the law of God. We see here in these verses, the law of Moses was written down and it was read before the people. Verse 32, and there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. Then if you look down at verse 34, afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel. So the law of Moses was written down and read. Some people have said probably this is the Ten Commandments. I don't think that matches the language here. This was the whole book of the law. This could have been the whole law we see in Deuteronomy. The repetition of that law. Deuteronomy Deuteronomy means second law. It's a second giving of the law. And so 
likely Joshua wrote the whole substance of the book of Deuteronomy there. At the very least, he would have had to write down the blessings and the curses that we see in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. But this is the book of the law. It was that whole covenant and God's instructions and commands to them that he gave them. They preached the whole counsel of God there. When we talk about the law of Moses, things can start to get a little bit confusing, can't they? As we think about issues of the law and how it relates to us and the gospel and Christ and the new covenant. I just want to say a few things about the law of Moses here. First of all, we're to understand we are as Christians under a new covenant, not under the book of the law of Moses as a covenant anymore. This was the old covenant law, which has given way to the new. As many have said, just as the moon shines in the night sky, but when the sun comes up at noonday, you you ought not even compare the glory of those two things. There is a new covenant that has come, brighter revelation of the law of God that's come in Jesus Christ, a new covenant. And the old covenant condemned, whereas the new covenant redeems. We are not under this anymore, and the early church even had to wrestle with this in Acts 15. Some people were saying, you have to obey all the law of Moses. And they convened together, and at the end of the day, Peter says, none of us have been able to keep the law of Moses. This was a burden too heavy for any of our ancestors to bear. And so there is, in a sense, a passing away of the law of Moses. It is obsolete, as the end of Hebrews 8 says. If you were to continue on trying to obey all the law of Moses, it's like driving around a horse and buggy when cars have been invented. I mean, all the horses and buggies, no one, no one drives those anymore, right? The cars have given way to that. And yet, secondly, we should note that the moral law of God has not been made obsolete. And neither have any of the scriptures been made of no use to us. There is an eternal moral law that is universal because God himself and his righteous character is unchanging. And so we see revealed throughout the Bible his standard of righteousness, his standard of morality, particularly summarized in the Ten Commandments and the two great commandments. As Jesus said, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. These are the two great commandments under which all of God's moral law is summarized. Even if we think again about the the horse and buggy in the car, there's some similarity, isn't there? Both had wheels, okay? So the law is, in a sense, transferred through to the new covenant. There's some some, um, sameness there. And in addition, 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17 says... All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for us, for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. There is use to these things. 
Sometimes we have to think through a little bit more, and through Christ and the new covenant, how these things relate to us, and, but we can still glean wisdom, and knowledge, and even commands for ourselves from the law of Moses. We're to delight in the law. And there are three main uses of the law. This is the third point here. The law is to us a mirror, a manager, and a map. As a mirror, we look into the law of God and it shows us who we really are before a holy and righteous God. And it leads us to our only hope of forgiveness and redemption, Jesus Christ. Because it does condemn. It reveals sin. Paul says, I would have not known sin apart from the law. Romans 7, 7. But it awakens in us an understanding of our sinfulness so that we might be led to turn to Christ and trust in his work alone. It also acts as a manager. If you think about uh, at a workplace, maybe there's a lazy crew of people and they're not really doing their jobs, but if a manager comes among them and he's standing there and he's watching what they do and he's reminding them of their duty, they will do their work. The law sort of acts like that in a way. As God's law and his commandments are known, they prod us and they poke us. Even in a whole society, if God's law is known, it restrains evil to an extent. And civil rulers ought to administer justice according to God's standard and be a terror to evildoers. This is their duty according to Romans 13, 3 to 4. So it does act as a manager in some sense. It also acts as a map. That is, the moral law, once we know forgiveness in Jesus Christ, and we have a heart renewed and love Jesus, we will seek to obey his commandments. And we can look at the moral law, the eternal righteousness of God, even revealed in the law of Moses. And we delight in that. We delight in all the scriptures. And we seek to follow them as a, as a road map that leads us on the good way, the ancient way, where life is, where rest is, where blessing is. Your word is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path, Psalm 119, 105. So it's to us a mirror, a manager, and a map. And note here just the commitment that the people of God were to have to the word of God. Their very observance of this renewal of the covenant was in obedience to the word of God. And they wrote it all out. They left nothing out. They read it in front of all the people so that everyone would obey everything written in the law of Moses. We likewise are commanded by Christ to teach disciples to observe everything Jesus has commanded us, Matthew 28, 20. And so we ought also to be daily putting God's commandments before us and endeavoring to obey him in every way, in everything. The church has to continue declaring the whole counsel of God that we might hear it and heed it and obey it. Again, if we love Jesus because he has first loved us, we seek to obey his commandments while remembering at the same time that he died for all our sins, all our unrighteousness. And he is the only one who has perfectly kept this law. And so we look to him even as our chief example. 
and our Savior. I've been learning a bit about the, the Sikh religion. I don't know if you've ever talked to a Sikh. There's actually a temple in our neighborhood where we live. And in their worship services, it's very interesting. They don't make sacrifices or burn incense to idols, as you might expect from an Eastern religion. But rather, they have a sort of scripture book written by their nine gurus, and they, they actually call this book another guru. It's the tenth guru. And in their services, they will put this on a platform. It's a great big book. They read from it. They sing from it. And so that, that word written is central in their worship. Well, how much more, friends, as those who have received the true word, the true and living word of the living God, ought this to be central in our worship. We do not have the fallible words of gurus. We have the word of Jesus Christ himself written down in our language. This is to be central. This is to be high and lifted up. We are to read of it. We are to sing according to it, do ordinances according to it, preach it. This is central to our worship. And as we gather together, we renew our commitment to obey God in every way according to his word. So we see the, the law of God there. We also see the people of God. This is the third thing. Notice how all the people of Israel gathered to hear the word. And this was a gathering that united all of them across all kinds of barriers. Uh, verse 33 says, And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord half of them in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. Down in verse 35, it says, there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. You see, they all gathered together. They were one assembly and that word there, assembly, is kahal, and it's translated by Greek as ecclesia. You know that word? Church. The church is a gathering, an assembly. We ought to remember this. The people of God have always gathered together in a united fashion to worship the Lord. Hebrews 10.25 reminds us, do not neglect the assembly of the saints. Rather, we're to continue on and all the more do this as we see the day drawing near. Hebrews 12, 23 reminds us that the church is the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Friends, we should never forget as time goes on that people were put in jail and fined for this very truth the last two years. And we ought not ever neglect the gathering of the saints together for worship on the Lord's day. Let's remember that, commit ourselves to that. We see that they were a united gathering across all boundaries, across national boundaries. It says here, sojourner as well as native born. There were pe people who were always a part of Israel and 
born into it. There, there were those who came afterward from other nations. We think of Rahab and her family. These people entered in and they worshipped together with the people. They heard the law of Moses proclaimed. Can you imagine Rahab believing in this great God that had done so many mighty things and fearing him and turning to him and being delivered, hearing for the first time all the law of Moses, the excitement she must have had. And the church, even more so than ancient Israel, is not confined to one nationality and it's not confined to those who grew up in the church. There are new converts from all nations that are to worship together and be represented in the gathering of the church. We ought to be seeking people of all kinds to bring them in. The churches may be full of people who praise the Lord from all kinds of backgrounds. This ceremony also united authorities with their people. We read of elders and officers and judges and Levitical priests Various levels of authority in Israel at the time all came to hear the word of the Lord presented before them. There was no one who was above the law, so to speak. They were all coming under the sovereign word of God himself. And so also we, whether we're leaders or lay people, churchmen, we all come under the word of God as our final authority. This united families as well. The women and the little ones, we read in verse 35. We're all present, hearing the word of God. And like I said, this was a long ceremony. I mean, if they were reading all of the law of Moses, we get weary when we just read a, a longer chapter in our scripture reading. But we ought to commit ourselves, all families, together to come under the hearing of the word of God. This is why we love to have children even present. They hear the word too. They respond to it. Even in the epistles in the New Testament, which were read in churches, there are commands to husbands and wives and children. Families gather together to worship God. And this is glorious. We enjoy this as we rejoice in the Lord with our families. So we see the unity and the togetherness of the people of God under the word of God. And as one other note, this reminds us that there is no unity apart from biblical truth, is there? We cannot unite with people who do not believe in the scriptures. We can't worship together with them. We can't worship with those who do not believe in a biblical gospel. There is a truth that unites us Together in worship, as the Spirit of God comes into hearts, He draws us to Jesus Christ. He delivers the truth to us. We're all still figuring out pieces of the truth, and there will be disagreements on minor things to the end of the age. But nevertheless, we are to be united only with those who hold to the truth of God as we find it in the Scriptures. Going on from the people of God... We want to look at the blessing and curse of God. This ceremony, its big effect was to bless the people of Israel, as it says at the end of verse 33. Verse 34 says, afterwards, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse. 
according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was a blessing and a curse pronounced there before the people. The goal of this ceremony was to put that before them. And they would utter their amen, as Deuteronomy 27, 15 to 26 shows. After all these commandments were read and the curses proclaimed after everyone, they would say amen, 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 accepting that if they were to disobey the law of Moses, they would come under the curse of God. On the other hand, if they were to obey all the words of this covenant, they would come under the blessing of God. What do we mean by the blessing and curse of God? Maybe in our popular culture, the only time we hear of curses is movies about witches or things like that or shamans or something pronouncing curses upon people. That's not what we're talking about here. In the broader sense, blessing, to bless is really to bring about good and prosperity for someone. To curse somebody is to bring about harm or lack in unfruitfulness. God can do both of these things. He can bless you. He can curse you. He can make people prosper or he can take things away from them. He can bring life or he can bring death. He can bring success or ruin. He can reward and he can punish. That's what we mean by the blessing and the curse of God. And Deuteronomy 27 to 28 gives us vivid graphic illustrations of this. Because God in that covenant with Israel gave them real time material blessings and curses that would come upon them depending on their obedience or disobedience to his law. Just summarizing what we see in those chapters here, not going to read it all. If they obeyed God, well, what, what would he do for them? We see that he would make them fruitful and bear children and that their flocks would bear young and they would be healthy and kept from disease. They would defeat their enemies in war. They would have rain in due season. They would have abundance of food and their crops would not fail and he would exalt them. Chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, verse 13 to 14, summarizes, it says, And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail, and you shall only go up and not down, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today, to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. So that's, that's the blessing of God for their obedience. If on the other hand they disobeyed God, we see that they would be stricken with disease and famine and even confusion and insanity of mind and they would be defeated by enemies and robbed and pillaged. Their material wealth and abundance would be taken from them. They would be exiled and oppressed and enslaved by enemy nations. God would destroy them. Chapter 28, verse 58 to 59 summarizes. If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring 
extraordinary afflictions. Afflictions severe and lasting and sicknesses grievous and lasting. And in Deuteronomy 30, 15 to 20, Moses says the choice before them is of life or death based on their moral performance. This is the same principle we see even years before in the Garden of Eden. If Adam was to obey God and not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would be blessed and he would be able to eat of the tree of life. If he disobeyed that command, what happens? You will surely die. The choice of life and death was before Israel and they uttered their amen to it. Now, how does this apply to us, the blessings and the curses of this law of Moses, which we're not under anymore? What what do we make of this? How do we apply this? I want to say there's at least two ways, first of all, that we ought not to apply this. First of all is kind of a, sometimes I come up with crazy ways of explaining these things, big terms. Um, what I would call a strict theonomic nationalism. What do I mean by that? Some people think we have to get the Old Testament law and the, the law of Moses into the government, even the government of Canada or, or the U.S., and then we'll be a blessed and prosperous people. We'll have material blessing. The reason why some material blessings are being taken from us is because we've given up on that law of Moses. We need to get the Old Testament law back into our nation. This is not the way to apply this. As we see, this was a specific covenant that God made with Israel itself, with very specific and real-time blessings and curses. It was immediate. Upon their disobedience, there was curse. Upon their obedience, there was blessing. This is a unique thing in salvation history. We have to understand that. There is a way that these may apply even to nations. We're going to talk about that in a second. Second error with this would be the prosperity gospel. Prosperity preachers, these false teachers, which are so common in our day, tend to even refer to passages like this. There's blessing and curse. If you obey God, you'll be blessed with material wealth and abundance. If you disobey God... And if you have no faith and you don't tithe to this, this or that ministry, then, well, curses will come upon you. And there's even generational curses, and you, you better sow your seed in these sorts of things. That's a terrible, terrible distortion of this passage. Again, it also doesn't note the uniqueness of this in salvation history, and it completely perverts the purposes of God toward our own human selfishness. So what is the right way to apply these things? Well, first of all, I think we should note that in God's sovereign providence and even his gracious and patient providence, he may dispense suffering or prosperity according to his own will and his wise purposes. Sometimes these are judgments. Sometimes they're blessings for obedience. God is ultimately sovereign in his own timing, how he may reward or punish people and nations. God does eventually judge all nations. 
for their wickedness. But it's according to his sovereign timing. If you read some of the prophets of the Old Testament, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, there are long sections given to oracles of the nations. This is God pronouncing his judgment upon specific nations, climaxing in the end of history on the day of the Lord when he will judge all people in righteousness. God certainly does dole out consequence, judgment, and wrath, and curse upon disobedience, but it's all according to his sovereign and wise timing and purposes. He may even bring suffering into the lives of God's people to discipline them, to to punish them in a sense, the lesser sense of discipline. We see this in Acts 5, for instance, if If Ananias and Sapphira were actual believers, but they sinned gravely, well, God immediately punished them for their sin. 1 Corinthians 11, we read of people who were made sick and were dying because of the way they were partaking at the Lord's table. We read in Hebrews 12, 3 to 11 about the discipline of the Lord. He may discipline us with various things in order to bring us back to him or to not allow further sin and corruption from taking place. Often God will bless also according to his gracious and patient purposes. He may bless his own people with material blessings with which they are to be rich in good works. He may bless nations being patient with us God has given us great abundance in this land in which we live, even though as a whole, we are not a people who follow him. And so we see his grace in dispensing great material blessing. And yet often we turn from God and we're unthankful. We don't have gratitude for these things. And God reveals his wrath as people turn and worship the creature rather than the creator And they devolve into further depravity, as Romans 1 says. God is to be thanked for all his blessings, whether spiritual or material. And this is the way to keep our focus on him and worship him. So know this, that God can dispense blessing and curse, suffering and abundance, according to his own sovereign, gracious, patient, wrathful purposes, whatever he chooses at whatever time. Secondly, we should note here that spiritually, when we try to apply these things spiritually to the Christian life, I think there is an application there that we are in general to expect spiritual harm and unfruitfulness if we go on in sin and disobedience. And we are to expect spiritual prosperity, stability, fruitfulness, if we are walking in God's path with a clear conscience, confessing our sins, forsaking them. We read of this kind of blessed person in Psalm 1, for instance, the man who meditates on the law of God and it's His delight, he's like a tree planted by streams of water. His leaves do not wither. They bear fruit in season. He's 
stable and he's fruitful. This is a spiritual picture for us as we walk in God's way. Psalm 119 as well ought to come to our minds. And I want to read the first bit of this. Psalm 119 says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. I think we see in that passage a man who he knows his sinfulness. He knows his propensity to turn away from the Lord. But he's calling out to God, asking for the strength to be steadfast in keeping the law diligently because he knows that is the way of spiritual blessing and prosperity. Sin brings torments of conscience, shame, confusion, inability, a lack of fruitfulness, but obedience in this way brings about joy and comfort and worship and witness and fruitfulness for the service of the Lord. So we ought to rejoice in God's law, delight in it, know it, and know Christ and his fixed and unchangeable love for us. And so loving him, obey him, and seek to walk closely with the Lord in the blessing of his presence. Thirdly, though, we have to note, I think this is the main application of the blessings and curses, that all are under God's curse for disobedience, but also may be blessed through the obedience of another, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've gone through Joshua, we've seen many pictures already of God's curse, God's judgment, the destruction of Jericho, that wicked city, the destruction of Achan who sinned against the Lord by taking the devoted things, the destruction of the king of Ai who was hanged on a tree and cursed of God. But we see throughout the scriptures that none of these Jews, none of the Israelites were able to keep the fullness of this law. And none of us have been able to keep the law of God. Last night at a youth meeting, we ran through what's called the good person test with all the youth. We looked at the Ten Commandments, this, even this moral law of God. If you look through these commandments and think about whether you have upheld them, have you always kept God first in your life? No other gods before him. Have you always worshipped him and no other, no created thing on this earth? Have you always kept his name holy and, and not profaned his name or taken his name in vain? Have you always remembered to keep the Sabbath day holy? Have you always honored your father and your mother? Have you killed anyone in your heart, your thoughts, your words? Have you committed adultery even by looking at someone with lust? Have you stolen? Have you lied? Have you coveted your neighbor's things? If we examine ourselves according to the eternal righteousness of the most 
holy God. We see that we have sinned against him. And as Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. We all come under this curse, friends. God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who turn from his ways, who break his laws. We come under this curse of spiritual death and physical death and an eternal death away from the presence of God's goodness and glory in hell. Friends, apart from Jesus Christ, we all fall under this curse. And yet what we see in the New Testament, in this blessed new covenant, which is firm and sure and can never be broken, is that Jesus Christ has come to do the will of God. God is not delighted in all these sacrifices of the Old Testament, but rather in the work of his only beloved son who has come to live a righteous life in our place and die as a sacrifice in our place. And he was raised from the dead. He finished that work. He returned to the father in glory. He's ruling. He's reigning. He's commanding everyone to turn to him and live to find the blessing of life and righteousness and even the spirit of God God's very presence with us. We see this in Galatians 3. Christ was hanged on a tree on that cursed mount, Golgotha. He was cursed so that we could be blessed and by works of the law, no one can be saved. But rather it's through the work of Jesus Christ and faith in him that we receive the promised blessing, the Holy Spirit himself to be with us even as an earnest of that heavenly life we're to experience in ages to come. Romans 5, 12 to 21 shows us that Adam disobeyed and brought death to all people. We all have sinned and so we die. And yet Jesus, by one act of righteousness, has brought grace and life and righteousness and peace to all those who believe in him. We are justified. If we believe in Jesus Christ, we stand as righteous before God, as if we have kept all this law, as if we have kept it so that we might receive every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, as Ephesians 1, 3 says. Friends, we're to look to Jesus Christ again from this passage as the one through whom all blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And so knowing his grace, being thankful for his grace, we ought to gather under his word and walk according to it, make endeavors to be a spiritually blessed and fruitful people. Every time we gather, we renew our hope in Jesus Christ, this new covenant. We're renewing the covenant even today as we preach the word, as we gather and sing as we partake in the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your blessings, which have come to us by no reason of our own works, our own merit. Lord, we all are sinners. We've broken your law. We thank you that Jesus Christ came to do your will, fulfilled all righteousness, died in our place. Lord, we love you. We thank you. 
God, we pray that you would renew us. Give us more of your spirit. You're the one who gives the spirit to those who ask. You're a good father. You won't give us anything else when we ask, but we pray you would bring about more of the fruit of the spirit in our lives. That we would live for you, that we would walk according to your ways. Walk by the spirit after the image of Christ, that we would follow him. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.